0: So I have a very special guest with me today on today's podcast. I am joined by four-time Olympian swimmer, Karen Pickering, MBE, no less. Hi, Karen. How are you?
1: Hello. I'm good. Thank
0: you. Excellent. Right. It was great to uh, get the opportunity to have a chat with you today. So we're going to talk about all things swimming, um, body image, uh, women eating, lots of different kind of issues and topics, which I think you'll have a really interesting insight on. So do you want to just start by just giving us a little bit of a background for those who don't know too much about your uh, sporting career and to um, your kind of, you know, how how your professional world with swimming came about?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I sort of started swimming as a kid, not very talented, but just really loved it. And, um, you know, was, was one of those ones that was kind of not at the front of The lane, but really enjoyed it, and just always knew it's what I wanted to do. So, um, I mean, in a, I guess, in a quick nutshell, progressed through, um, and sort of in my early teens, made quite quick improvements, and um, eventually, I sort, I made it onto the junior team um, on the second year of when you can be a junior. So, I sort of later junior developer. But then in the same year went straight on to the Great Britain senior team. Um, so at the age of 14. So I made sort of quite quick progress, progression at that age. Um, and then swam for Great Britain on the senior team for 20 years until I retired at 33. So um, it was, yeah, it was just, it, it was my life. My life was just swimming, um, just It's a weird thing, just to spend your life just trying to go faster up and down a pool, Um, and that was that was my sole aim in life to go as quickly as I could up and down a pool for a long time.
0: (laughs) Wow! And what amazing achievements you've had along the way. You know, I mean, kind of you know, world championships, Olympics, NBA—just phenomenal. Can you put one thing up there that you would say if you could have that day again tomorrow? That would be the thing that stands out.
1: Gosh, that's a tricky one. I think, I mean, there's probably a couple. The first world title that I won um, in 1993 in Palma, um, it, it was unexpected. Um, uh, you know, I knew I was swimming well, um, but I kind of, I w- wasn't really, you know, ranked to, to win the event. Um, and so standing there to become world champion, um, knowing that on, you know, on that day, I was, I was the best in the world. Um, was was really special, and because it was the first title that I'd won, it was sort of almost a relief as well that I'd got something in the bag. Um, and then many years later, in two thousand and two, at the Commonwealth Games in Manchester, um, I'd again. I mean, I suppose I got a theme. It was a, a bit against the odds, really. I'd come back from adversity, having broken my back in nineteen ninety six. Um, not, I was I think I was ranked fifth, <coughs> excuse me, fifth in, in the Commonwealth, um, but to win that title in front of all my friends and family and home crowd was just, uh, it was amazing.
0: And I think, I mean, when we talk about um, the good, the bad and the ugly of all people's careers, and particularly in the world of sport, there'll be a lot of people that didn't realise that you had that struggle with, with your back and, you know, times where perhaps you thought you were never ever going to get back to the, the pinnacle of the sport that you did, do you think there was something inherent within your personality that enla- enabled you to sort of conquer the hard times and, and keep going when perhaps others thought you might not have that fight in you? Um, I think, yeah, p- possibly.
1: I think there were, there were quite a few people at the time who sort of said... Um, that i was a bit silly to try and carry on because i would be remembered if you know if i didn't get back to swimming swimming well i'd be remembered for being a failure and not for the fact that i'd been commonwealth champion and world champion um and that i would only be remembered you know for my last swims which would have been not great um so there was that side but that to me was really alien um, and I, I couldn't walk away. I'm sort of that, person. I need to know, you know, I, I just, I can't walk away without trying something. I'm, I'm kind of, I, I'll go down fighting and that's, that's kind of just the person I am. Um, so I, I needed to know, so I, I sort of accepted that it might not work out and that, you know, I might fail in my attempt to, to come back, but I was okay with that. Um, I think the, to me, the, the kind of risk reward, it was just a no no brainer to me. I just, I needed to know and I had the opportunity. I mean, it took me three years to get back to full training. Um, and, you know, and it's tough with an injury like that. Um, like, like so many things, it's, you know, there's no bandage, there's no plaster, no one can see it. It's just there and you have to, um, you have to be very sort of confident in in yourself or a very accepting of yourself um to to kind of work with that because you can't keep saying yeah but I've got my back hurts yeah but my back hurts because actually no one cares so you're
0: making such interesting parallels there so for the vast number of people that are listening to this you know that for them their kind of ongoing battle will be restoration and recovery back from an eating disorder and there will be times when that fight feels just too bloody difficult. And you know, yeah. it will just feel too, too hard. And and I think- No, you know, one, can no, no one can see it. No, yeah. absolutely. And, and I think, you know, we'll, we'll hit on this um, during the, the chat, I'm sure, but particularly with an eating disorder, there are times when physically you might look more well than mentally you are well. And I talk yeah. all the time about the need to have that kind of neural rewiring has to mm-hmm. come kind of even after the nutritional rehabilitation. So that can take two or three years where, on the outside of it, all your friends and family now think, well, she's in a nice-shaped body again, so I'm mm. sure she's well. But actually, mentally, it's taking a long while yeah. to catch up. And you talk about that that sort of was a long period back for you. Yeah, it was. And, and it is hard because
1: you you want to keep saying, I know, but, I know, but, you know, my back. But actually, I was okay. I just had to accept that people couldn't see my fight, that I knew it and that it didn't matter what other people could see, that, um, that I, I knew what my goals were. Um, I kept a lot of, um, sort of diaries and sessions so that I could see what I had done because, you know, we all are very good at remembering what we haven't done. So, you know, if it's that, I don't know it's that classic thing you can someone can say 10 nice things to you but if one person says something bad that's all you think about not the 10 good things and so I just wrote everything down I just had it in black and white so that I couldn't lie to myself so I couldn't give me an example
0: what would you be writing down I'd be writing down
1: um so it might just be my sessions um so I'd write down what I'd done in a session so if ever I was thinking you know god I haven't done the training or I haven't done as many meters as I want to or I haven't gone as fast well actually I have I can just look I get my book out and I look and go yes I have so instead of this idea oh but I haven't done this I haven't done that here's a book full of stuff I have done which then can outweigh so when you know when you're sitting there and I mean even you know, I, I use it sometimes when I hadn't been feeling that great about myself. I've, you know, write down the good things about me so that if ever I'm having a, you know, I, I should have done this better or I haven't done this very well or, you know, doubts that you have about abilities, even to be being a mum, you know, if, if I have in black and white, all the stuff I've done, I can't lie to myself. I can't let my heads get away with thinking I'm I'm not as good or I haven't done as much or I haven't, you know done the work or haven't been successful because I have a book of all the things I've done
0: so it's kind of dumbing down that negative narrative isn't it it's just kind of taking that away diffusing it and bringing something positive into play
1: yeah because we're so we we, we're so irrational at times um, (laughs) and we lie to ourselves and we you know we we only you know depending on what frame of mind you either only hear brilliant stuff about yourself or you only hear negative stuff and you might think oh that's great thank you thank you thank you for that and then hear this one little thing is going yeah but that person doesn't like me or that person said this about me and you dwell on that one thing yeah and it, and it can become a real obsession or it can come, you know it can really niggle away at you when actually we should be celebrating all the things that we have done and so a lot of um what i needed to do in order to be prepared to fail if you like was i had to kind of be proud of all the things i had done and had accomplished and how far i'd got i am i am very much that kind of person i'm um i'm i am a positive person generally and i am a believer that if you work hard for something there's no reason why you can't get it but i also accept that sometimes things don't don't work out but it doesn't stop me trying so I didn't go into it just going I'm going to be brilliant I knew there was a chance that I wouldn't make it back but I also felt like it you know I can give this everything I've got and then if it doesn't I'm okay with that because I've worked really hard so it's sort of a a, it was a combination of things but it wasn't it wasn't easy I mean there was, there was quite a turning point for me at um, the 1998 Commonwealth Games because I got to the point, and this is a bit about the, how irrational you can get, that I stood behind the blocks when I swam 200 freestyle, so four lengths, and I was absolutely convinced that I wouldn't finish four lengths. So not that I wouldn't win, but I, I was convinced leading up to that point. So my 200s hadn't been brilliant coming back. they I'd struggled because... I just had this fear, this utter fear that I wouldn't finish four lengths. And so I got to these Commonwealth Games in, in um, Kuala Lumpur. And I, you know, I've been doing just to enough jump in to in there, had,
0: had, had there been a point at any stage in your career where you had not finished?
1: No. I mean, this is all to do with my back injury. So this is all to do with, I used to stand behind the block and my confidence came from knowing I'd done the work. So I couldn't stand there and feel like I'd done the work, which is why then concentrating more on what I had done and not what I hadn't done became so important, but it was, um, I just stood there and just thought, you know, I I can't, I'm not going to finish. I can't finish. You know, I'm going to have to go out really slowly in order to make four lengths. So I can't can't go too fast on the first half. I've got to be really cautious. I've got to, you know, my strength had always been in the back end of my races, but I just took this to a whole extreme that wasn't going to finish the race. And, you know, up to that point, i had been doing enough to qualify for teams. And I'd, I'd made the Commonwealth Games to swim this 200 freestyle. And um, I qualified seventh or eighth for the final. So I just scraped into the final. And I remember being in the swim down pool thinking that I can't, this can't go on. I can't, I can't be like this. I can't be this terrified of my races. I can't. This is ridiculous. You know, what's the worst that can happen? That I have to be dragged out of the pool. Okay, let's see if that's going to happen. So I decided during my swim down from the heat, so in the final, I was going to dive in and go as fast as I could for the first 50 metres, 100 metres, and then just see what happened. So I thought if I really face it and see what's the worst that can happen, then I'll see how bad this really is. So in that 200, I went out in the first 100 metres. I absolutely blitzed it. And I led the race for 195 metres and got the silver medal. So I just, oh, I just wow. got overtaken oh. in the last five metres by Susie O'Neill. Um, but then I sort of got out and I was okay. Because I knew I'd just kind of faced the worst thing that could possibly happen to me. What I thought at that time, obviously, it's all relative. But in the pool, I'd, I'd kind of faced it and then realised, okay, I can do this. But I've, I've got to change the way I look at things
0: so it's a kind of mind shift
1: yes massive
0: So, so interesting really that you in the time that you were at the height of your professional sporting career we didn't talk about mental health and you know kind of mental resilience in the way that we do now and like in a sporting arena but but generally can you sort of think of any particular aspects of your approach and the way your mental mind, you know, your mindset approach was dealt with by your coaching team, by yourself? Do you kind of look back and think, wow, that's actually quite interesting. Now, if you look in, in hindsight about how we've moved forward about telling athletes more about how much brain is as important as the power in the body.
1: Um, yeah, you're, you're right. We were starting to use psychologists and sports psychologists around that time at various times I have used sports psychologists but it wasn't it probably wasn't in the same way as you do now um, to prepare yourself or work with what you've got it was more kind of like these these things worked really well for I don't know Adrian Morehouse tried these tips so try this and this this kind of um you you know you could try this uh, visualization was something that I used a lot of and um hence I I am you know a real believer and understand how strong your mind is and how much you can achieve if you just really want something and um you know there there are times in sport where it's not about who's physically the strongest or who's physically at the peak on the day it's just about the the mind and the body working together on any given day that can make it work and i've seen really talented swimmers just crumble um you know and and just not be able to perform because they just can't get the two things working together so i wasn't um mentally the strongest um i i had um i was very a very self-conscious person and that was probably my biggest fault um that i was i just by, by which it, you mean
0: self-conscious comparison to other people is that, or what yeah i would say so i was very
1: um i was not a really overtly confident person that would just kind of could just breeze onto the poolside and you know i could fake it I could definitely so, fake, so, it. So, definitely
0: so, fake so, it to make it yeah so so for those that like don't know so I kind of I've seen you on that sort of swimming stage I remember being at kind of Suffolk County Championships and everybody would watch Karen Pickering walk down the side of the pool and you had a real you know a real air about you and then we always used to comment about you know Karen does that thing where you get the water out of the put edge of the pool yeah. and you always there was kind of a drill that you went through and it always looked yeah. like you were really poised and you knew exactly what you were doing Is that about, was that a performance then? Was that the front? Was that the wearing that slight facade to give yourself that inner confidence? There was definitely an
1: element of it. And also that that kind of routine sets you up. So you tell your, you're telling yourself like, I'm ready to go to work. So you follow a routine and then it comes back to a bit of the visualization. So if I visualize certain things, it's like when you hear bits of music, smell certain things then my body would know, right, I'm ready. I'm I'm now ready to do this thing that I visualized doing. Right. So, um, you know, I would have gone over my race loads of times in my head and gone through everything that I'm going to do in the race. Not to the point where if something goes wrong, you can't cope. But I would have gone through, you know, walking out, getting ready, deep breath, splash myself with water onto the block, go. And then I would talk through the four lengths. So when I did that, that was like a trigger that I'm now I'm ready and I would be calm and ready to go. Um, I think in that I've, I've always been someone who doesn't like in, walking into a room of people. Um, you know, I'm not, I, I, I sort of lack that confidence um, in sort of group, groups of people, big groups. I'm better in smaller groups.
0: Oh, I'm so, so like that. Can't go to yeah. a house party, but I'm fine with a one-to-one or house I, parties. You'll be seeing me in the kitchen, just hiding, making a cup of tea. <laughs> And it's the same if there's
1: a, you know, a massive table of people talking, I'm, I will rather talk to the people next to me than talk to the table. I just, I'm just not that person who likes to talk to the table, I prefer just to have my little chats. Um, And so you know, I can do it. I can talk myself into doing it. You know, I was the same when I was younger and I had to make phone calls. I would write down everything I needed to say and talk myself into making a phone call so that I could say what I needed to say and make sure I had everything and then get off. So I, could, I trained myself to do all these things that I need to do, but it's not a natural thing for me. So on the pool side, so at the Suffolk Championships, I w- yeah, I would have felt pretty confident and know exactly what my goals are. But then when you change changed the, the scenery and you put me in a group of people I don't know um, so you know the first time I'm on a senior team or the first time um, you know walking out in front of lots of different you know teams and swimmers who all seem really confident the Americans just were so loud and you know that that would have made me go "Whoa, okay I need to work out how I navigate through this because I wasn't someone who would just confidently go out. I needed to find tactics to work through all those, those places and that kind of thing there wasn't helpful. So, Mm -hmm. because I, I think that, uh, you know, a, a sports psychologist would know who's, who's kind of, working their tactics and who's it who's it coming naturally for and who needs help with this and who you know who needs who can cope with the ready room because that's fine and I was always fine in the ready room but who needs help actually in the on the bigger stage just walking out and feeling confident in in a warm-up or a training session so things like that we didn't really have that that kind of support and looking back there's definitely areas where I really lacked that would have made a massive difference to me but I didn't understand them and i don't think anyone really understood or people didn't understand them like they do now in people so um but then in things like visualization and preparing for races you know that was that was very very common um, and understanding how um you know even now i mean anecdotally there's there's evidence that people that your brain when you when you visualize, your brain can't tell the difference between physically doing it or thinking it. So you can, you can improve things by just thinking about them if you do it enough and if you can make it as close to the real thing as possible. So during lockdown with the swimmers, I was talking to them about visualizing perfect tumble turns, visualizing, visualizing perfect skills, because if you do that enough, your brain doesn't know it's not doing it thinks it is so you're not going to get physically stronger your muscles aren't going to grow but you you have a memory of doing it and you can actually train yourself to do things so
0: that you know the brain is so powerful in that way but Interesting. we you talk about that in recovery coaching all the time about kind of the need for people to recognize how powerful the brain is in any direction either positively or negatively so if you believe you will never overcome your eating disorder if you can believe that this is all going to be too difficult to go out for that family meal well you're already getting yourself in a state of I will not complete that race effectively to make that parallel
1: exactly and that's why when you understand how how powerful your brain is you can understand that it can be for good or for evil You know, you can see, so when that voice comes in, you can go, oh no, wait a second, I know what you're doing there, because I know that that's just, that's just a negative voice, that's not reality, and then you can bring in the positive side to go, yeah, because if I think even stronger that I can do it, if I work on doing it, I can shut that one down, because it's not, it's not reality, it's just training your brain in the right way, so... Um, you know whether you can or can't do something we, you don't you don't know so the voices inside you aren't real they're just whether or not you choose to kind of use your brain for good or for bad and you know it,
0: it's 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 a powerful thing is that what is that the sentence they say that whether you believe you can or you can't you're right <laughs> it's kind of yeah. you know convince yeah. yourself in either direction and that's you know ultimately that's the self-fulfilling prophecy yeah, 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 exactly. So well, one of the um, reasons I really thought I'd love to talk to you um, for Wednesday's child, Karen, is obviously swimming's, um, you, you know, I, I think anybody that goes into a particular sport, there's perhaps a tendency to be quite focused on the body as a machine. But there's anecdotal evidence that, um, those that do go into swimming may have a tendency to veer into sort of eating disordered thoughts or have suffer some degree of body dysmorphia. Is that anything that you can say you can recognize from your um career that you experienced at the time saw other people going through
1: um there's definite, there 's definitely an element of it i you know i was I was swimming at a time when we got weighed a lot and um so not not at my club um but when we were on the national team it was you know the usual morning routine was to take a urine sample to check we weren't dehydrated and then to weigh ourselves um and that was done publicly yeah wow yeah we just queued up got on the scales um there were times when our weights went up on a sheet. That was when we did a power to weight test. So we do our weight and then we do a power test on the ergo, which is like a dry land swimming bench. So if you imagine a rower for swimmers, you sort of lie on your front and you pull paddles. Um, and then, so we do some, we do a test on that to see, you know, the the power we could achieve against a certain weight on the pulley. Um, and then it would go, it would be, I don't know, put against our weight and you'd have a power to weight ratio and that would be up on a board for everyone to see. So, you know, when I was kind of in my thirties, there'd be 15 year old girls who would be on that. And I, you know, I can, I can imagine that that was really quite tough. Um, You know, I, I always did quite well on those tests, but <clears throat> how how my how I was physically was just luck you know there are swimmers who are different sizes to me and they're better swimmers you know it's and actually the kind of power to weight ratio it is there is some element of that in the pool but it's not everything because you know we we kind of know now that buoyancy and body position is really important so you know that when you look on the pool side there are some events where you go okay the swimmers are all sort of six foot girls are you know around six foot the freestyle events but actually the pool side is a real mixed bag of what people look like so you know this whole power to weight thing it's only it's only a tiny part of it um so you know when we used to get weighed I wouldn't look at my weight I wasn't interested I had absolutely no interest in what I weighed I knew how I felt um, particularly on training camps, I had no interest. So I just used to say to the sports, um, the physiologists, if there's a problem, tell me. So if I was losing weight drastically, I, you know, to me, that's you know, maybe I'm dehydrated or something's wrong. If there's a problem, tell me. Other than that, I'm just not interested in my weight. It, it, it didn't interest me. And so I didn't want to spend any time thinking about it because to me, that was not, not about how fast
0: I swam. What did that um, down to that that not it not affecting you was it in part to do with how you were raised, or you know what do you think that was that stopped you being affected? I think I saw
1: other people getting really hung up on how much they weighed, so they'd do a really great training session, but they 'd be talking about how much they weighed and I just I, I just thought this is ridiculous you know that it doesn't make any sense to me at all this and this is goes back to this thing about. You know, you do ten things well, and you you focus on the one thing that's not you're not happy with. So they were getting really hung up on weight, and we you know we'd be doing a two week training camp or a three week training camp, and people would get really caught up in their weight every day. And I just thought, I don't I don't buy into it. I don't I don't want to be like that. I want to look at um, how my training session's gone. You know how if I've got any injuries, how my muscles are, how my speed that interested me. And, and I wanted detail, you know, on all of those things, I wanted detail. I wanted to understand it. I wanted to know my splits. I wanted to know my reps. I wanted to know, you know, everything about my training sessions I had absolutely no interest in what I weighed. It just, it, you know, it was nothing to me. It was nothing to do with what I was doing in the water. So, um, I had a nutritionist, um, to to help me because there were times when I was at full training that I would struggle to eat enough calories Um, and so she helped me to maintain that but I know that there were you know there were times when um, we had a performance director who just made a ruling that no one was allowed pudding at dinner time it was just an arbitrary ruling no athletes were allowed dinner so he'd grown up in, he'd grown up, he'd, he'd been a part of the whole system where, you know, all the girls have to be skinny and, um, you know, it's about how small you are and how, how fast you can swim and being that small. And he didn't, he was, it was old school. And so, you know, people just went did to that the rooms. Did you? How did that sit no. with you? I mean, did that jar with you? Were you angry? Yeah. Yeah, really angry. I just, I just thought it was completely wrong. You can't have a team at like uh, 30 people and just say none of you are allowed pudding. It's like, well, we've got guys who swim 1500 meters who've ju- who are doing a week of training of 10 K a session and you're telling them they can't eat in front of other people. You're making the whole environment toxic because you're making food a thing. Whereas what you should do is talk to everyone individually about their needs, obviously, because we're not, um, we're not machines. We're all people mm-hmm. and we're all really different. So, you know, I can do 6,000 meters in a pool and have a different physical outcome to somebody else doing 6,000 meters in a pool. Therefore, I need to look at my nutrition differently to another person. And if you are telling me that you think everyone does it the same thing, then to me, you're just lazy and you don't know anything because that's not how people are we're all we're all very different we all work differently so this blanket idea to me i was just like i'm not, I'm not so do you
0: do you think that system negatively affected people that you were yes. competing alongside I'd, yeah
1: yeah definitely definitely i think there's there were definitely um, there were definitely some swimmers who were then binge eating in their rooms Um, So they weren't getting the help they needed because they were following the protocol, but then going completely the other way um, in private. So where they needed actually someone to sit down and go, right, this is the best fuel for you. And this is how you work best. um, And this is how you do it. And we all understand that we're all different. Um, So I don't know whether she still has, Um, You know, that whether she still does that, you know, there is a possibility that when she's under stress or in times of when she's the equivalent of hard training in real life, that she doesn't go back to that behavior. Um, You know, I, I think of some of the 15 year olds with their weights put up on on the board for everyone to see. And, you know, for them, maybe they maybe they hide hide that now. Maybe that is something that's had a long term effect. You know, it seems like a small thing. But you also have to remember it was it was pretty it was all it was an all male environment so it was all male coaches, and I'm not saying that boys don't have the same issues, but it's different than a 15 year old girl seeing her weight put up on, on a board. But I don't think that was understood. So I don't. It wasn't an intentional. Um, you know, it wasn't intentional to try and shock people. <clears throat> they just didn't think. They didn't think through the repercussions. Like the, perhaps people would now. You know, I, I very much doubt they they do that now I'm certain they don't do but, that but you're right I mean I
0: think that there's something about how it takes um time yeah. for people to catch up with an app- appropriateness of how you handle things I mean even in the last couple of weeks I started talking about women in sport and menstruation it was kind of never like really discussed but that's suddenly become a really big topic about how much that affects you know women in sport at a high level naturally yeah. are affected by their periods and it's taken you know, women to come out and say, do you know what, the, I had an accident in the middle of a coaching session or whatever. I think I was hearing the other day, somebody who I think she was um, in canoeing and she'd had like a, you know, she, she had an unexpected period and how it had affected her and uh, and yet these are sort of topics that I guess when you were back in sport, we didn't talk about women's issues. We didn't talk about weight, body image, girls being skinny or not, girls binge eating or not, girls potentially having anorexia as much as possible we just treated them like a sports person and just shelved everything else. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, we were sort of all kind of lumped together and you didn't, you didn't talk about stuff like that because it would, you know, it would make the coaches go um, because it's an all male environment. They don't really want to know about that kind of detail, but, um, but yeah, you know, you, you have to understand in a four week cycle of a, of a woman, there's going to be a week probably that she ain't going to be at her best. And you have to try and factor factor that in and understand that. And training will have to be different, you know, because you just, for some people extremely different and also the the nutrition, you know, it can seriously affect your iron levels and you have to address that nutritionally as well as understanding that fatigue can be really different in that week, especially when you're pushing your body to extremes. So understanding that you know when you're not training as hard as you could the week before is not because you've suddenly become a rubbish swimmer actually your body is going through something so yeah there was there was not the understanding of exactly what that does to your body and to how much and it was more a, uh, yeah it was probably okay you know if all women have it go over it deal with it so-
0: You talked about working with a nutritionist and um, a lot of the the kind of conversation that I have with people about when they've had um, sort of support from an eating disorder dietitian or nutritionist or somebody very well-meaning in a kind of community services team often tries to give them a meal plan, some kind of meal plan, food plan. And sometimes it can be helpful for a period of time. But what we often see is people become quite obsessed and addicted and worried that they can't cope without a food plan obviously for you it was really critical that you spoke to that nutritionist how as you kind of maybe even as you've eased out of your career do you do you think it was easy for you to learn to be intuitive about your own eating yourself or do do you think there is a danger that for some people it becomes too uh, too much of a ritual too formulaic is that a danger? I think I mean there's definitely there's a lot of there's a lot of things
1: connected with food that I've sort of noticed over the years. So the, the firstly, when I was training and at the height of my training, I could walk into the kitchen and I I could just think, and I knew what my body needed. So I knew if I I was, I can hear voices all over the country going, wow, my God, that would be amazing. (laughs) Yeah. It was, it's a really strange feeling, but I, you know, not, it was more if I, if, if I was really deprived of something. So I would know when, when I needed iron because I could just, I would just be thinking, what do I want to eat? And I just knew I craved red meat. And then I would think, yeah, my iron's low because I'm on my period or I just, um, and I could just feel it. I knew when I was coming down with something because I craved citrus. Um, I know now when I'm tired because I want sweet things and it's not because I like sweet things. Because I'm more of a savoury person. But if in the evening, sometimes I'm just chilling watching TV, I just suddenly have a craving for something sweet, that's got nothing to do with wanting sweet food. I'm just tired. I need to go to bed, you know? My blood sugar, my sugar levels are low. So I have, a, I have an understanding of what my body is saying to me when I crave certain things. Um, and But that doesn't mean... Um, you know, I'm, I'm the healthiest eater and I, I'm, you know, that, uh, and I'm a terrible cook, which doesn't help. Um, mm. food to me has always been a means to an end. So it's always, to me, it's always about fuel. Um, so when I was, when I was training, I would be like, what, um, what do I need? What do I need on my plate right now? I need, I need some red meat. I need some vitamins, put that on the plate. You know, I would not serve this food up for anybody. Because it wasn't about a nice meal. This was about fuel. Um, Everything I was doing, my body was my tool to do my job. And I needed to fuel my body to do my job better. So the better fuel I put in, the better job I could do. Um, And so that's that's what my food thing was all about, refueling. Um, I love eating out when some you know i going out to dinner because it then wasn't more now but it then wasn't so much about refueling it was then about enjoying a meal I also was obsessed with not having enough to eat because I needed so many calories when I was training when I stopped training I used to have these panics like what okay when am I going to eat um and then I just thought, oh, I don't need to, it's okay. <laughs> I don't need to eat. But because I knew I needed fuel to do my job, um, if I was going on a long road trip, if I was driving somewhere, I would always have what I needed, my drinks, my food with me, because I couldn't, I knew I couldn't go long without needing to eat and having to eat to refuel. So I would have to have what I needed in the car or on the train or wherever it was, because I couldn't trust um, if I was going to an event and, you know, it was food that came out on plates and it was picking food, I'd get a bit, I'm not going to get enough. I'm not going to get as much as I need. And I'd get a bit like tense and a bit anxious that was I going to get as much food as I needed. So, you know, there was, there was an anxiety around making sure I had what I needed for my body to work. And then when I stopped training and didn't need all of that, it took me a long time to to change that mentality and that I don't need that I don't need I don't need to worry about that I don't need to be anxious about food and when I'm going to eat and refueling now I can just I have to eat a lot less because I'm not burning calories but I can now try and start to actually enjoy food as food and not just fuel
0: It's so interesting, isn't it? Because there's a lot about um, that. I don't know whether you've ever kind of come across the expression we talk about mental hunger being a real thing. But actually, the more somebody's body is in a state of famine, the more mentally they obsess about the need to have food, access to food. So I've often talked to people about in the height of my anorexia you suddenly start wondering, why am I reading um, recipe books all the time? Why, why do I need to see pictures of food all the time? What's that about? That just seems really freaky. Yeah. But when you understand that actually that's because your body's in famine and it's your brain saying, I haven't even got the fuel or the energy to make you physically recognize how hungry you are. So what my br- I'm going to just kind of take over your brain and I'm going to say to you, you just need some damn food. And it's, yeah. it's kind of interesting that it took until you were no longer training. It then took a while before you could actually just trust your body that actually you don't need to have food around you all the time because you will get it yeah. when you need it. It's not like it's yeah. going to fall off the planet. No,
1: no. And, um, and you know, there, there are times even with my children now and they're like, I'm really hungry. I'm really hungry. I'm like, you can, you can wait. Trust me, nothing's going to happen. Just
0: wait and you know and so, so talk to me a little bit about that so now you're a mum. you've got two girls you you've done it kind of the hard way you've got twin girls so yeah <laughs> bun, bundle of uh, kind of frustrations but delight as well, well at the same time but obviously you've got two girls and mm. you talked about the kind of body image and and food and is there anything that as a mother you are conscious of raising them around food and their bodies that you think You're very aware of not necessarily from your own experience, but because we talk about eating disorders and mental health that much more. Is there anything that kind of goes through your mind about that?
1: Um, There is. I think uh, it's definitely trying to use the right language. And I think I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert on on nutrition and um you know psychology so try but trying to use the right language i think is really important so they understand good what they think is good and bad food and they've often come home from school and said oh you know sweets are bad i'm like well they're not actually you just can't only eat sweets and you have to brush your teeth but sweets aren't bad nothing's bad everything's okay there's nothing you can't eat but we have to have a bit of everything because you need this for this and this for this and you need this for this. But there are some things you can have more of and some things you can have less of. So they, they look on the packets for the red, amber, green and they'll say, oh, mummy, this is red. So we can't have many of these. So I'll be like, "Yep, yeah, that's right. So you only have one bag of crisps a day um you know they looked at something else I think it was Wheatabix was all green and they're like we can have as many Weetabix as we want like yes and have milk because milk's good for bones and so I'm trying to really instill in them that nothing is bad and there's nothing they can't have so yes you can have sweets yes you can have chocolate you can have crisps but you can't only have that and I mean fruit is a treat for them. They absolutely love fruit. <clears throat> they're not one, they're, they're very different as well. So quite interesting, the whole nature nurture, because they're very, very different in terms of what they eat, how they eat, what they'll try. Um, so that's quite going to be a bit of a navigation, but it's just trying to get them to understand, you know, they, um, you know, I talked to them about, <clears throat> they need their eat, <clears throat> they, they need their food, they need the drink and they need their sleep. For them to have a fun day the next day. So if you want your energy for the next day, you've got to have a good night's sleep. But if you, if you, our bodies need water, we're, we're lots of water, and you can can't survive without water. So you've got to have lots of water. And if you want your energy to run around, you've got to eat your food. You've got to eat your meals. If you don't eat your meals, then you don't have the energy to play. And they're big players. You know, they love to play, they're active, they're crazy. Um, we've got a big garden and they generally run riot in order to do that they need their they need to eat but it's about you know t- trying to get them to understand that I don't want
0: them to ever think something's bad. So w- so when you say that do you, do you worry when for example, Boris is now banging on about obesity for, you know, plenty of right reasons. Yes, we have to accept we've got a problem in society with obesity as well. Yeah. And because of coronavirus, there are heightened reasons why we need to tackle that. But do you worry about that obesity and bad food rhetoric, particularly for young people? So whether schools are teaching it or whatever, do you worry about that kind of potentially when you're not there, that kind of narrative that they might be picking up that might make them slightly a obsessed or paranoid about food um yeah
1: because it's because it's not the whole message you know there there is also the exercise side of it so you know i try and talk to them about the the balance between food exercise they see me at the gym all the time. So they understand the importance of exercise. And I talk to them about exercise is not just for my body, it's for my mind. So it's both. It's a healthy body and a healthy mind for exercising. And, um, you know, I try, I, I really try to work on and they see it, you know, they, they see it, they copy me in lockdown. They were trying to join in with some of my, um, uh, core workouts and things like that. So, um, they, they, I want them to see it as well as me saying it, so they understand that it's a balance of everything. You know, breakfast is really important if they want to be able to have um, energy for the day. Um, you know, they need they need their lunch in the middle because they need their energy for the rest of the day. So I try I, I do try as much as I can to give them the whole picture, um, and I think there's a danger with what. Um, Boris Johnson did in that he started with exercise was really important in lockdown. If you remember, it was one of the things that surprisingly everyone was allowed out for one, um, one form of exercise a day. Yeah. So there was this exercise and then there was opening the pubs before the leisure centers, which is a different message. Um, And then there's the kind of tackling obesity by working on food. And when you just kind of send a message, you know, make a statement with only part of the facts, it's really easy just to get caught up on that and just think, actually, yeah, if I just um, don't buy multi-packs of Coke and, um, you know, only buy one pack of 12 crisps or whatever, then I'm going to, I'm going to be healthier, but it's just not how it works. So there is definitely, there's, definitely understanding that and there's definitely understanding weight and there is weight that you can help there is there are things that you can do to make yourself as healthy as you possibly can but it's not everything so there are bigger people who are healthier than smaller people there are smaller people who are healthier than bigger people we are all so different we have to take responsibility for ourselves to make us as healthy as we can be um and i think if you know, if you don't, then you have to understand that is, you know, you have, that's your responsibility. This is your body and you need to do your best with help um, and with guidance and, you know, accepting that we we all make mistakes and that there are other things that can happen in your life that will change how you feel about food and health and exercise. But we have to do what we can for us. And You know, so that's what I do and what the girls do is going to be different from what some of their friends do. You know, they might be way more active than some of their friends who, you know, might be have a completely different diet to them and eat eat a much healthier diet to what the girls eat. But, you know, we all have to work with with what we've got. And also it's got to be sustainable. You know, and, and that's kind of my, you know, I've never done a diet or a detox or, a you know, any of those because I just don't think any of it, any of it is is sustainable. You know, it's got to be something that you can, you can still enjoy your life. You can still be happy. Um, and... Sometimes, when things are forced upon you too much, or you're desperately trying to follow something, it's just at the detriment of your life. So, if you can find a way to make it so that it integrates in and that you can actually enjoy it, then you're more likely
0: to be able to live it and keep it going. Yeah, absolutely. One amazing kind of summary of um, that, you know, our kind of conversation today that I think actually, if we all Regard ourselves as a unique machine that therefore needs a unique level of fuel but actually the ultimate goal is to be able to live a healthy happy life and not to be worrying about kind of eating one percent less food to have like 99 percent lesser quality of life I think you know yeah we all try hard enough to get a decent happy life don't we so why why compromise ourselves yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we,
1: life life can be really tough and it can be really dull at times and it can be, you know, and then it can be brilliant and exciting and fun. And, you know, you know, most of us are lucky to have amazing people in our lives that we can spend time with. So if you think you are then getting to the point where you're pushing all that away, because all you're thinking about is, um, you know, I can't, I can't go out to dinner because, you know, then they're that they're, I'm not going to be able to eat the, the right foods or I'm not going to enjoy it. Or, you know, there are times when I've sat with some friends who are, you know, gone out and I just think they de- they're not happy. They're desperately trying to lose weight or eat whatever the latest diet is. And they're going through everything on the menu going, Oh, I can't eat that. I can't eat that. Or, Can you cook this this
0: way? Does, what does this have in? And I just think it's so life's too short. Yeah. Yes, it is. I mean, you know, and, and actually if there's one thing we should all be learning right now, it is life is pretty short and we never yeah. know what's around the corner. You know, this time last year, if we'd have been having this chat, we wouldn't have known about this flipping awful virus that's uh, gripped the world. And yeah, we, yeah we, we just don't know. But what all we can say is that by obsessing about what we look like, what we're eating, how many calories we're eating, all it will do is be the thief of joy, won't it? And uh, there's just not enough.
1: Because you're not thinking about something else when you're thinking about that. No. And And, and actually,
0: I I think so much we we don't allow ourselves to be present with people enough as it is anyway. You know yourself, you know, I don't know, you might have been kind of really busy with the girls or rushing from one thing to the other. And you agree to meet up with someone, but you're not really kind of present i think mm-hmm. if you add in something like an an eating disorder or just an obsession around your food and your weight and how do i look and what is this person thinking mm-hmm. you're sitting with someone you might be in that in the kind of orbit with them but actually your head's in another place and nobody's getting the real you and you're certainly not enjoying where you're at in your in your life it's just
1: And you add into that, the chances are, you know, when you're sitting with three people, you're sitting there thinking, oh, gosh, you know, she's prettier than me or she's fitter than me. And they're sitting there thinking, oh, God, you know, her kids are better behaved and she's done so much more with them. And the other person is sitting there thinking, oh, wow, doesn't she look great in that dress? And I wish I had, you know, the house as big as hers. And then all three is just sitting there wishing wishing away. And actually, you don't realise that you should be sitting there thinking, yeah I'm all right look look, look what I've got yeah going back to that diary of writing down and training ourselves to think about what we've got and spend less
0: time worrying about what we haven't got so if we take one thing away from today it's kind of Karen Pickering says let's get a gratitude (laughs) journal and every single day before you go to bed write down three things that you're really grateful for or three things you've done
1: you know just write remember the things you've done I mean I you know I made a Apple and blackberry crumble the other day. I've never made one before. This was, you know, spectacular, and that's the kind of thing you, know, you just—it's the kind of thing that's forgotten and that other make, people make every day. But that was a massive thing for me to to do, and it's just stuff like that. Actually, just remember the little victories because they can yeah. just get blown away. You know, just get forgotten because i don't know you forgot to order something or you know you've got no toilet paper or something really mundane you forgot to do and you actually forget all the victories you have every day so if you're one of those people that just doesn't remember how great you are and all the things you've done however tedious or small they might be to someone else just write it down and you'll have a book of victories
0: amazing karen i just want to read very briefly and just say um what were you up to these days and other than running around after twins you're still teaching swimming you're kind of still in the immersed in the world of swimming not doing a lot of sport commentating given that we've not had tokyo no. olympics this year what happened
1: there no i know i should have been you know like partly um Just speaking Japanese right now, having spent three weeks out there and just, you know, be full of sushi and talking about what amazing um, sporting events I've just seen. But no. So hopefully that will go ahead next year instead. Um, Obviously, you know, you just don't know, can just kind of, I guess everyone's praying for a vaccine right now. Um, So I don't know when the kind of commentary um, competitions are going to start up again, but um, school starts soon. And um, I work at Ardingly College as the swimming development officer. And also manage their swim school. So um, we have thankfully been able to get some of the elite squad back in the pool for a couple of weeks now, which has just been amazing to see, you know, these guys who've been starved of chlorine, um, just diving in and just soaking it up and just, um, just grateful to feel the water around them. You know, it's an amazing feeling, isn't it? um so um yeah so I work I work with Ardingly um on their elite swimming trying to progress the swimming at the school do a little bit of coaching and um teaching some of the some of the groups but mostly it's um developing the whole structure of, of swimming at the college and then little bits and pieces I'm still on the board of um Sport England um, which has been, um, they've been so vital in the last few months with um, so many um, clubs and organisations at risk of just financially going under at a time when sport is so important. You know, I talked earlier about it being not just about your body, but your mind. Um, and, you know, for some, it's the only interaction they have with people. It, you know, when you think of swimming, for some, it's the only sport they can do. Um and you know so Sport England have been really crucial in providing funds at short notice and keeping a lot of organizations running over the past few months um, ready for when they could get going again Um, but hopefully um, you know the strategy going forward to try and help more women and girls get active but also the kind of The BAME community, which um, are the least least likely community of people to be active, trying to make sure that sport is accessible for all and activities are accessible for as as many people as possible. So that's quite rewarding work to be on their board.
0: Amazing! Certainly keeping yourself busy. So you know you might have said that you retired in your thirties, but it doesn't sound <laughs> much like a retired life. <laughs> from over here goodness well wow. yes it's
1: a bit different but yeah i know i got my first employed job at um 47 wow I 47 the first time i was employed so there you go
0: yes <laughs> wow well karen it's been lovely to chat to you thank you so much i know you're dashing to take the girls yeah. off for a family swimming session aren't you so we are we are yeah. All right. Well, I'm sure Wednesday's Travel will be in touch with you again soon. So thank you very, very much for your time today.